It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. Stephen and Anush are both away on holiday this week. So while the cat's away, the mice will play. I'm joined by a very special guest, political journalist, best-selling author and beloved Twitter personality, <laughs> Marie Leconte. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. I don't believe I'm a bestseller, best-selling author rather, but I am happy to pretend. Well, I'm so pleased to have you on today. We're in the middle of recess. Westminster is kind of quiet. It's a good time, I suppose, to think about the way Westminster works, which you're so good at, so embedded in. I kind of wanted to begin, I want to come on to the most recent book and your previous book, but I kind of wanted to begin just by talking to you for people who don't know you so well. They're clearly not on Twitter in that case. For the people who don't know you so well, I'm really interested by your journey into Westminster politics and what made you fall in love with it, because my impression is really that you totally adore this world of Westminster, or maybe you don't. Kind of what brought you into it? The short version is, obviously, I grew up in France. I came to the UK to study journalism uh, when I was 17. Did not really have an interest in politics. Slightly embarrassingly, my way into politics, I've, I've thought about it before. Like, I think I need to come up with the lie, basically, because the real story is actually quite embarrassing. But um, so in 2010, which was the end of my first year at university, I went and got very drunk with my friends, as one does at the end of freshers' year, and ended up going to this party with a boy I really fancied in the hope of snogging him. And my friends had gone home by that point. And the second we got to the house party, he ended up snogging some other girl. And I realised I did not know anyone else there. And I didn't really know where I was in London. This was pre-smartphones. And I noticed the TV was on in the corner and it was actually the general election of 2010. So out of just sheer awkwardness, I sat by the telly all evening, just drinking a bottle of wine by myself. No way. had a tremendous time. So I stayed until 7am. I became the political correspondent of the house party. And and I had no idea what anything was. I remember, you know, like David Dimbleby explaining what a hung parliament was. And I was like, I barely know what a parliament is, but sure. So I think that that was kind of the beginning. And then after that, obviously I joined Twitter in 2011, which I think kind of helped as well. And then I think weirdly as well, it was Tumblr actually that kind of turned an interest into a proper passion. So I ended up following these incredibly funny young people making effectively just like sort of like really, really funny memes about political current affairs, but also political history. And generally, which again, mortifying to admit, but I sort of ended up learning more kind of, you know, again, the background, the history, everything 
to kind of understand the jokes that people were making on Tumblr. Yeah, and so I ended up spending the summer of 2015 actually just sort of like reading and watching every documentary I could and yeah, reading every book I could, the memoirs, etc. And that's kind of when I think I came out of summer of 2015 thinking, okay, you know, I, I do really understand uh, British politics now. And that's also when I started writing about it full time and been there ever since, like a friendly neighbourhood stray cat. And it's so funny as well, because you are such a creature of the internet that it was Tumblr that got you into it. I don't think I realised that. I think I thought maybe, because we've never talked about this, I think I thought that maybe in France growing up, you'd always be fascinated by... British politics in particular and that was what brought you over but you kind of fell into it and then I uh, did I yeah I mean the, the, the joke I always make uh, which is a which is really easy is no actually so what brought me to Britain actually was a kind of love of mid noughties indie music that was kind of my thing and then yeah you know it's somehow I uh, I I moved away from posh white boys who were very obnoxious to a uh, posh white boys who were very obnoxious. <laughs> so, you know, there was actually quite a seamless transition in terms of interests. You began working, was that that first job was BuzzFeed, am I, am I right? No, I actually, so I graduated in 2013 and then quite randomly ended up doing some shifts at the Daily Telegraph picture desk. I knew I wanted to be a journalist and I'd known for a long time, but I didn't really know what area of journalism I wanted to work in. And I tried to apply to the grant schemes, but I'd been such a slacker at university that I did not get into any of them. So I kind of thought, basically, I'll I'll try and do my own unofficial grant scheme. So I sort of took shifts everywhere I could find them. So again, picture desk, I worked on some news desks, I did some weird internet stuff. I even wrote about Bitcoin for a month. So I literally sort of like took any, any freelance shifts I could just to see what I liked and what I didn't like and stuff. And then I think that the moment everything kind of changed was in early 2015 when I started doing shifts at the Londoner's Diary at the Evening Standard, which I know you've worked at as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think that was kind of the eureka moment for me because I thought actually this is, you know, I, I really enjoy going out and drinking free alcohol and now I can do that and get paid for it and gossip. I had this brilliant, brilliant editor there who realised quite quickly that my passion was politics or was not necessarily going to the, you know, more like celebrity heavy stuff. You know, I just really wanted to be in Westminster and that's kind of what I wanted to be doing. And yeah, and she said, actually, you know, fine. So ended up hiring me. And so I covered basically politics only before the diary. So my job was kind of covering politics in Westminster, but, you know, always via the medium of, you know, be that um, drinks receptions or, you know, book launches or whatever, like, you know, and you know, going for drinks with people, etc. So I was kind of covering politics from the sidelines in a weird way, from the social sidelines, which was actually really, really fun. So I did that. Can I jump in there? Because for, so for listeners who don't really know what the diary is or what the tradition of a diary on papers is could you explain oh yes absolutely it I mean it's effectively it's a gossip column and it's I would say in terms of content and it can be anything from private eye type stories of actually kind of nearly like mini investigations and stuff that's quite hard-hitting uh, and can even be a gender setting. I think, you know, we definitely did stuff at the time that was followed up by other places, but also incredibly frivolous. So I think my editor always used to say that the ideal diary quote is either getting a very serious person to say something very silly. So, for example, if you meet, meet you know, a secretary of state, ask them, you know, about the name of their dog or something, like something funny their dog has done, or someone very silly, you ask them about something very serious. So I did talk to the occasional sort of like singer or whatever and be like, you know, what do you make of Brexit? <laughs> you know, so I think it, it, it's that it's a mix of, you know, gossip and it's fun. It, it, it's just meant to 
amuse and entertain, I guess, which again, as a result, is an extremely fun place to work at. Mm, and as you say, that's that's something that we have in common because I also began my career in journalism and my introduction to journalism through the Evening Standard Diary. And I think it's just such an interesting and unusual way to be introduced to the world of Westminster, as you say, from the sidelines. You can follow it from the outside in quite some detail just by covering all, like following all the other journalism around it. But as an introduction to that world, to be on the periphery at the drinks receptions and taking people for drinks. And for me, it was really interesting to kind of uncover the mechanics of how Westminster really works that way. It's obviously not the whole of Westminster, but it's quite an important part that I don't think before you wrote your first book, haven't you heard? <laughs> out now. Before that, I don't think that I had really seen someone give that side of the world of Westminster enough attention or, you know, I hadn't seen anyone take it seriously before. It's, yeah, I think it's a weird one. So the book kind of came from the realisation, I think, when I was at the diary of thinking, as you said, you know, most of what I do is not covering what happens in the, in the chamber of the House of Commons, is not, you know, the press conferences, I didn't really read policy documents, etc. But I still felt that I had a very, very strong grasp, actually, of what was happening in Westminster and, you know, what... Yeah, as you said, kind of like what was actually going on behind the scene, but getting a good sense as well, as well of like where the power lied, I guess, and what was actually going on, the mood in the parties, et cetera. So all that stuff, that matters hugely. And I think that's kind of, yeah, that, that, that was the beginning, I think, of the idea of thinking, hang on, you know, I'm not even technically covering politics, and yet I do really feel that I know exactly what's going on. Just to finish on diaries as well, I think what's really good is that it's kind of a baptism of fire, and it's... It, 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 it is very sink or swim when you think back, because, again, for people who've never done it, essentially it's always, or tends to be people in their very early 20s, and you sort of get thrown into a room with, you know, in our case, I guess, of, you know, members of parliament, ministers, secretaries of state, and they're just trying to talk to their friends, and you're by yourself, and you're just supposed to go and have a friendly chat with them, except that they know, because you've introduced yourself, they know that you want them to say something embarrassing, mm -hmm. and you sort of have to charm them into saying something even though they know it'll get printed and it, it, it's such a weird job and actually I, I really I would say controversially perhaps I, I found the job when I was at BuzzFeed as a political reporter I nearly found that easier than being a diarist because at least with the reporter I think everyone knows you know it, it is done in mostly the daytime you know your work and stuff and everyone knows what they're doing whereas diarist you're kind of a, a bit of a snake really a, a charming snake and the, uh, yeah exactly you, you're persuading people to to play ball with you and it's a completely different way of approaching politicians and getting to know people around Westminster. I have, I mean, I have a lot of distinctive memories. I think it's probably one of the joys of that job that every night you're at an amazing party or drinks reception or book launch with all of these people that you recognise. And then you end up having really weird conversations with them in the name of journalism. I have a memory during the Conservative leadership campaign in 2019. It was the day that James Cleverly had dropped out. So I chatted to him for a bit. We were at the parliamentary tug of war, a noble tradition in aid of Macmillan Cancer Care, in these beautiful gardens near Westminster. And all of the leading politicians were there and all the chat was about the Tory leadership race. And Matt Hancock was there doing his schmoozing. He was still in the race at that point. And he was speaking to Philip Hammond in the corner, both holding glasses of champagne, clearly making his pitch. And I think at that point, Philip Hammond had made it clear that he wasn't going to stay on the front bench. So he was also interesting to talk to. 
And I just thought it would be really funny if the diary interrupted this, like Matt Hancock right in the middle of his pitch to Philip Hammond, you know, come on and back me, because I'm sure Philip Hammond considered it um, or would have felt like inclined to, to give him his backing. So I just sort of barreled over and, <laughs> and said, oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I'm Alva from the Evening Standard Diary. Da, da, da. I can't remember exactly what question I asked first, but Matt Hancock said, excuse me, I'm trying to have a private conversation with Philip here. And <laughs> Philip Hammond said, no, no, it's fine. I love the diary. <laughs> and he, cl- he just clearly didn't want <laughs> to be engaged with this pitch any longer. And he gave the funniest quotes And Matt Hancock was just standing beside him looking outraged. And it made for a lovely piece. And it was this great moment of sort of being a bit outside myself because I wouldn't be that rude as myself, (laughs) I hope. But as As the the Londoner. As as the Londoner. For the Londoner's diary, it's what you've got to do. And I'm wondering if you have stories like that. Oh, God, I have a a number of them. I think my favourite, like my my silliest one was... So, yeah, there was this event at the National History Museum. And I can't remember. I I think everyone was bored of Brexit, whatever was going on. So I was like, I'm just going to be very stupid about this. And so I just went around asking all the MPs there what their uh, favourite dinosaur was. And it was actually delightful because... So who was it? Like John Glenn, who I think... Was he like Chief Secretary of the Treasury or something at that point? And you know, it's like, hi, John, you've never met, you know, Londoner, blah, blah, blah. And he just completely panicked. Like, he melted. He was like, oh, God, oh, God, uh, uh, my favourite dinosaur. Oh, God, I know so many of them, but they're just all gone from my head now. And just completely, had a complete meltdown at me. And I was like, it's not, this is meant to be fun. And then I asked Matt Hancock, as well, actually, an all-time diary favourite, and whose same just became really intense. I was like, which one? I don't know. I just said, so many to choose from. So I think that was really fun. I would say my favourite one, I'm going to cheat slightly, is not from me, but from someone I will not name at the Times Diary. I was at a party, so I think one of the, I don't know if, you, you strike me as more serious than us, but there were definitely times, I think, with my fellow diarists where we'd get a bit too drunk on the free alcohol and then go, oh no, we're here for work and we've forgotten to talk to anyone. I make um, no comment. <laughs> And that, so that happened to a friend of mine and the last person left basically was Philip Hammond and he was like, okay, fine, fine, I'll go talk to Philip Hammond. He was very drunk. So it's so like, goes over, it's Philip Hammond who was Defence Secretary at the time. So as he introduces himself and shakes Philip's hand, he realises he's not thought of a question. So panicking, he went, um, m- Minister, what's your favourite gun? <laughs> <laughs> and Philip Hammond's response was, please leave. <laughs> Um, I think one of my most absurd ones was when Ed Balls went on Strictly. And then I could not tell you how that started as a story idea. I think it was literally just a joke around the desk. But we were like, OK, we are <laughs> going to try to bully Peter Mandelson into doing Strictly as well. There'd been like years and years ago, I think at Labour Conference in Blackpool, I think Peter Mandelson had danced with this old woman who'd then given this really funny interview saying, oh, you know, Peter, he was so smooth and so wonderful to dance with. And yeah, and I was effectively just given Peter Mandelson's private email address and just harassed him for weeks. I was like, Peter, are you going to do Strictly? Peter, do Strictly. And eventually he did reply and he was like, absolutely not. I'm obviously not going to do Strictly. But there was such a great moment of somehow, you know, this is what I'm paid to do. I am paid to harass a former Secretary of State saying, do strictly, do strictly, Peter. And I was like 24. <laughs> so you, you kind of have really established yourself as like the queen of Westminster gossip. And and I think you capture the the fun of it, definitely. But the, the point of that book, I mean, I don't know if you would agree, is that 
the gossipy, silly party side of it is quite serious to how Westminster works. Oh, it absolutely is. And I think you can't really, regardless of what your job is, I think, you know, if you're a journalist, a lobbyist, an MP, a special advisor, a staffer, like whatever you kind of do in the Westminster bubble, I think it would be probably incredibly hard, if not impossible, to do your job if you never engaged in the kind of, again, the informal and the soft people stuff. But obviously the problem being that I, th- I think it is something that's quite hard to convey, I think, in political reporting, because if you lean too hard into it, I think, and, and again, not unreasonably, then the criticism becomes, hang on, you know, this is not like this is a newspaper, we want news, not just kind of like posh gossip. But also if you ignore it completely, I think you you let out so much important information. I think the, the most obvious example, which is in Haven't You Heard, is reshuffles, you know. Actually, you know, if you know lots about politics just in terms of, you know, let's say what happens in the chamber, what bills are debated and who the MPs are, etc., you would probably be consistently baffled by every reshuffle because they never make sense, right? You know, it's always people, it, it always seemingly the wrong people getting promoted or demoted, etc. In order to understand that, you have to have such a good understanding of you know, A, who the factions are, like what the factions are, who's in them, but also how they all get along with each other and with number 10 or with the leader of the opposition. And, you know, who's on the up, who's on the down, who gets along, who doesn't and stuff. So you, you do need to have, I think, that understanding of that entire layer of, yeah, of the informal, of the personal stuff, even though, you know, some of it will sound a bit silly, but it, but it is absolutely sort of like crucial information. I think I wondered reading your first book, which I really recommend to everyone listening, by the way, if you if you want more of a sense of, of how it feels to be around that world on a daily basis. One of the things that really struck me was whether you maybe found it difficult talking about the unspoken role that gossip plays when actually the problem with gossip is it's really hard to report. Um, I remember when I started on the Evening Standard Diary, which was my, you know, my first real experience in journalism, first time in a, in a newsroom close to Westminster. And Guy Pusey, who, you know, who was the deputy editor at the time, in really just one morning, really, I felt like I lost my innocence because he told me about so many politicians and other <laughs> famous people having affairs and their famous affairs and all the famous super injunctions. And he said that the best gossip is the gossip that you can't print. And I feel like the thesis of your book is completely right. The gossip is really quite fundamental to how Westminster works. But it's also tricky because a lot of it you couldn't even really nod to in in a book. And I wondered how if, if that felt like a, a challenge. I think it's probably a challenge for political journalism in general. But when you're writing a book that's trying to tackle it head on, actually, was it not the case that maybe the best stories you couldn't go near? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I think it was the one thing I, I like to think that I've been quite good at the at the bit of being an author that is, you know, accepting criticism and stuff. Like I'm sort of, I would say, 90 five percent fine with that but what really annoyed me was the reviews going oh well I was expecting a lot more like you know exclusive gossip in that book and it's like I didn't want to get sued like you try and publish a book that's just full of gossip that's never been published anywhere because normally as well I think you know that's kind of the rule if a piece of gossip has not it is known in Westminster and has not been published anywhere there's usually a good reason for that which I think every young journalist takes a few months or years to understand. So, but, you know, we, we've all chased gossip of going, well, you know, everyone knows about this, but I, intrepid young reporter, will, you know, publish the truth and then you try and chase that story and then you're like, oh, no, it's that. there's a reason why, like, if every poled, you know, in the country knows that this happened or these people are having an affair but they've not written about it, turns out there was a good reason. I didn't want the book to be 
too tied to current affairs anyway, because I'm hoping, I mean, this is uh, me and my ego here. I would quite like someone to be able to pick up the book in five or 10 or 15 years and go, actually, you know, it's still working roughly the same way. Because again, the point of the book is kind of saying that actually things have worked this way more or less for, you know, forever. So I think that, you know, if I decided to do a book of saying, you know, and by the way, X is shagging Y, etc., that probably would have anchored it in a point in time a lot more. And, and, and even, yeah, because I can think of probably a few sort of like really explosive pieces of gossip I've heard about very senior politicians. But for the most part, like, who cares outside of Westminster that say like a junior minister is shagging their aide? Like, you know, that that's not like that's not a thing. So I think it would have been that as well in terms of reader interest. I reckon, you know, I want to know about that. I bet you'd want to know as well. But, you know, in terms of like normal, like quote unquote normal people, like no one would care about the kind of lesser known MPs anyway, I would say. I think that's true, except when maybe it's around the periphery of decisions around shadow cabinet reshuffles or cabinet reshuffles or things like that. Unless there's basically a hypocrisy, I think, which makes it uh, in the public interest. Or I think if it's a very weird sex thing, in which case it's like the banter defence, really. I've long said that newspapers should have a banter public interest defence. Sometimes something is just really funny, and I think that should be fine. <laughs> Your, yeah. Your Honour, I thought it'd be funny, uh, should be a legitimate defence for a newspaper in court. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Don't forget to listen to our bonus podcast series, Westminster Reimagined with Armando Iannucci. You can get it in this podcast feed. Don't forget that you can now listen to our special Germany Elects podcast series, which explores the campaign, the runners and riders, and the big issues ahead of Germany's election on September 26th. Available now on the World Review podcast feed and at newstatesman.com slash Germany. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. I love that we've got a guest to do that and you didn't even seem to mind. So in the light of of your new book, Honourable Misfits, we've had a question from Will who would like to know who your favourite historical MP is. Huh, that's a really good question. Hmm. I made sheet slightly, and so it's been quite interesting seeing how people respond to Honourable Misfits, and literally, which I was not expecting at all, but the one MP people have been tweeting about, posting about, has been William Payne Galway, who is an MP who had actually a very decent career as his MP for Thursk in the 19th century, and was, you know, sort of decent enough, but basically died by falling on a turnip. 
uh, like tripping, falling on a turnip, and then dying from the infection. And and apparently, with that, that's captured the imagination of every reader in a way of just really enjoying it, which I did not see coming at all. It's probably him, but in terms of the book, what I part think, of him fell on the turnip? So I think it was the leg. Okay. Um, but also with yeah injuries like that, is that was it the leg or the groin? Like, because it's that always reminds me of someone, an acquaintance who was a war correspondent who got shot in the ass. There is no other way to say it while he was covering some war and the subs changed it to shot near the spine because they were like, otherwise people will laugh at you instead of feeling sorry for you. So so again, with the the thigh, it's always like, how up the thigh though? Just hitting the dick by a turnip. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> so I'm interested in how you picked him and, and more broadly, the thinking behind going back through history and picking out the these eccentric characters from from Westminster, what made you think of doing it? Oh, that's a really um, easy one to answer, which is I did not. The um, publishers got in touch with my agent to say, hello, we have an idea for a potential book and we think Marie LeConte would be good for it. And I mean, you know, I did. So I think their idea was just saying, you know, we'd quite like to do quite a fun book about kind of, you know, quirky MPs of the past, but we'd be happy to kind of, you know, let her have a thing, which was quite fun. So they sort of gave me that. And then from that, I had to write a proposal and kind of think of my own idea and my own, like putting my own spin on that. Honourable Misfits is kind of what came out of it. And obviously with a mix of, you know, you've got so adventurous MPs, unfortunate eccentrics, villains, etc. So there's six categories in total. So yes, so that was kind of that. And yeah, Galway, I think it was literally just, I can't even remember how, now, which is this is a slightly weird admission, but I don't fully remember writing the book because I mostly wrote it during the first lockdown. Um, oh. And I, yeah, so I live alone as well and lived alone at the time as well. And and life was just profoundly weird. I was, you know, very thankful I got to write a book, but it was by definition a bit samey. And my life could not have been, you know, physically could not have been any more samey during the first lockdown. So it was a case, you know, I did sort of like wake up every day in my small flat and I, and I wrote my words and I had one glass of wine and I watched a movie and I went to bed and then I woke up and etc. So because I think, you know, and there's been research into this before, which shows that yeah, memories don't really form if your life doesn't change. And I think, like, sincerely, as a result, I don't fully remember writing the book, which is kind of worrying and also weird and awkward when doing interviews. So there you go. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, you must be made of, of steely stuff to be able to write a book, because that's a lot of pressure. Write a book in, in the darkest days of the first lockdown. It was right. So I, I went completely the other way, I think, from everyone else in that the first lockdown I found to be hell on earth. So like, I, I just went completely insane quite early on. So within the first two weeks, I had shaved my head and tattooed myself. So that was great. But no, but then after that, I think that the, the way I decided to combat that was to just be as active as I could. So again, so I was, yes, obviously I wrote the book. I ended up exercising five days a week which was objectively an unhinged amount of time to spend exercising per week. And, you know, every sport you can imagine that you can do via Zoom lesson, I tried. Don't ever attempt to do burlesque on a sort of like heavy carpet in a small bedroom by yourself, is what I will say, because it was just a humiliating experience all in all. I think in that context, writing a book was quite good because it means I could sort of like throw myself into it completely. And it helped a bit. So you are actually the person who w that message was being directed at that, you know, didn't Shakespeare write King Lear during <laughs> during the depths of the plague or something. You were that person who actually was productive in lockdown. But then in the winter one was actually weirdly the one I quite... Because I feel like quite a lot of people quite enjoy the first lockdown, which I find 
very weird. But weirdly, and everyone hated the winter one. But I think I kind of had the opposite of the winter one. I did not do that much work. And I just wore pyjamas the entire way through. And I bought myself a Nintendo Switch. And that's sort of all I did. I just played video games in my pyjamas like a 14-year-old. I just switched, I think. Did the lockdowns the wrong way around. Back on on Honourable Misfits, I'm interested in how you feel about the lighter side of, of Westminster and the more human side against all the serious stuff that this is the the very stuff of governing this country and it's a serious life and death game in lots of ways there's a there's an interesting bit at the beginning of your book where you sort of talk about how i think you you felt it's it's important to just share these more amusing human stories about politicians past and present because politicians are human and it probably is helpful to show that human side Is that something that I think informs your journalism more generally, this sense of politicians being people as well and often the way we cover it, not leaving much space for that? Oh, absolutely, 100%. And and I think, yes, I'm always, I think, more interested in the human side of politics, but not not in a way so which doesn't mean that I do sort of, you know, like human interest stories about MPs or whatever, but I, I, I think that a lot of what I enjoy writing is, yeah, again, as you said, you kind of try to take into account that, you know, the revolutionary notion that MPs are humans and people like you and I, just about most of them. Part of why I wrote Haven't You Heard, and I guess to an extent this one as well, is that I think a lot of people are convinced that politics is unbelievably boring. And it's true if you just read the papers, you know, it, it can be really dry. Once you get really into it, you do find that it's it's actually like, it, it's incredibly compelling and, it, and it's again I think because of that human side as well but anything from you know the kind of nearly like sociological or anthro- anthropological even you know side of like what what does power do to people so watching and I guess you can't really have that I suppose unless you're actually in the bubble but actually watching especially at politicians change from let's say you know having just been elected to what they're like five years down the line or what happens to people once they start going up and up and up you know and getting promoted what happens when someone decides like they want to be leader etc so I think that's absolutely fascinating to witness Mm. something that weirdly fascinates me which again um, that's probably back more to to us haven't you heard in Honourable Misfits but so because we talked about the affairs thing a bit and and obviously, you know, don't get me wrong, it's quite fun. But I also find it, I, I, I don't know, I just find it really interesting because so so often these affairs are clearly about, like, anything but sex, to be blunt. Because, you know, w- w- when you see, like, the amount of, and I've witnessed it before, like, people, let's say, no, absolutely not giving any names. But, I, you know, I, I've witnessed members of parliament snogging, you know, their mistresses on the terrace of the House of Commons. Yeah, um, not, you're not the only one. But, yeah. <laughs> No, but I'm always like, again, I find that really interesting because it's like, okay, well, clearly what you want here is not just, you know, to have an affair. You want everyone to know you have an affair. And like so many of them, I think, get found out because they're incredibly obvious about it. Like there's such a weird, I've always wanted to write a column, which is like, you know, sort of like advice to people in Westminster. Surely it can't be that hard to just have an affair. Like, I believe in you. You're not stupid people. Just meet in zone three if you want to have a drink together or something. Now, I'm, I'm partly joking, but yeah, find that really interesting. Even, you know, when gen- when MPs, I remember the first time, the very first time I went for a drink with an MP who I think wanted to just, like, leak me something. And we met at the Red Lion. And I was a bit like, Everyone, everyone's going to know it was you. Um, you know, and, and I found it, like, I remember finding it profoundly odd because I was like, okay, if you would like to leak something and have a conversation you're not meant to be having with a journalist, why would you want us to meet, you know, 
in the bar everyone goes to. And I think that was because there's clearly a thing of like, look at me. Clearly, an MPU was, I think, a bit past it by that point. He like, look at me, still talking to journalists. They want to talk to me because I'm important and I have the secrets and all of that. I just, yeah, again, I just find like remarkably compelling all the, yeah, the human stuff. Yeah, I love it too. And and these things are things I think about in politics all the time. The way the extent of affairs in Westminster is something else. And I think it actually is quite fundamental to how things get done. But also none of them sound fun. Like not to be French about it, but I feel like I've heard of so many gossip and stuff where I'm like, this all sounds incredibly unhealthy. Like none of you seem like you're having a good time, which presumably should be the point of like extramarital affairs. <laughs> and, but even just, yeah, what politics does to people and, and the way that these are fundamentally completely ordinary people, but there is maybe something about politicians in it, in their personalities that draws particular kinds of people into politics, particular insecurities, particular early experiences, a particular need to impress or feel important and then observing what that very unusual job and unusual lifestyle does to people once they're they're in it I think it's just as part of the the day job it's the daily experience of observing these people I know and it's also so the one I'm always fascinated by as well is MPs who are clearly very shy and don't like talking to people and I'm like why this job out of all of the jobs you could have picked, why pick the job where essentially all you do all day long is talk to people? But, you know, you, I'm sure you've met them, you know, he look at the, you know, they look at their own shoes and they don't really want to be talking to you. Cle- like, clearly, very physically do not want to be talking to you. And it's like, again, what you, you can't be surprised that journalists want to talk to you sometimes. It's that drive, I think, to impress that's so fundamental that, I mean, it must be torture if you're that kind of a person. But you, where I think that there are lots of people like that in politics where they absolutely hate the experience and yet they feel this eternal drive to do it, to be like pushing themselves into the public eye to get a, to run, to stand for election, to move up the chain while finding every moment of it kind of torturous because there's some some sort of deeper need. I mean, in lots of cases, you know, people do have quite profound beliefs that they which mean that they're kind of trying to get over the personal things standing in their way. Mm. And in other cases I think it's this this really deep desire to be loved. Right? <laughs> but it's also I think something that and again I think is is quite hard to get across in in reporting is that I think it must be the roller coaster must be so odd of getting elected as an MP, especially if you've not necessarily worked in Westminster before. It's kind of getting elected in this, you know, incredible like, you know, night of a lifetime and you come in representing your area and you know, maybe where you grew up whatever and you sort of come in and then no one cares about you to be blunt I think if you're a recently elected MP who's not you know a rising star from the start for whatever reason I didn't win you know like a marginal seat or whatever no one's going to care and I think and that, that works I think with every type of MP you've talked about so if you've got you know a pet issue or something no one's going to care about it. Other MPs probably aren't going to care about it. Journalists aren't going to care about it, etc. And also if it's that thing, you know, absolute desire for attention and stuff, no one's going to give it to you. Like the, the whips may occasionally be a bit mean and that's sort of it. Anyways, it's a slight caricature, but I think it's also... When you look at, I think, MPs wanting to have, you know, some level of power, so be that, you know, attention from the media or getting a job on the front bench, etc. I think it does also have to be seen, in, yeah, again, the context that can get missed, that if you're just a random backbencher... 
no no one really cares what you think or what you do. Because I remember, when was it, the 2017 election, I think, when I had to do that really boring piece that every outlet has to do at every election of the list of all the MPs standing down. And that was remarkable because I, I wrote about at least six or seven MPs. I was like, I have never heard your name. And also you've been there for a while. You've ne- you never did anything. You know, you, you never, like some of those MPs were just there for, yeah, 10, 15, 20 years Join, you know, maybe like two APPGs, served briefly on a select committee, and that was that. So it, it's that as well. I think everything has to be seen through the lens of your bog standard backbench MP has no power. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our very special guest, Marie Leconte. Her book, Honourable Misfits, is out now. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks very much for listening and don't forget to leave us a review.